Welcome to the fifth episode of Sassmouth Dames. Today I'm looking at William Wyler's The Good Fairy from 1935, starring Margaret Sullivan. With a deft adaptation of Frank Molnar's play by Preston Sturgis, the production takes a grim nightmare and transforms it into an optimistic tale. A young orphan, played by Margaret Sullivan, alone in the city, is quickly set upon by male predators. A kindly waiter attempts to protect her while she commits herself to be a good fairy to aid an impoverished lawyer. When Lauren Bacall took to the Hollywood Hills reading out loud to follow Howard Hawke's advice to practice lowering her vocal register, she and many other aspiring starlets who did so were most likely emulating Margaret Sullivan's voice. A contrast between a petite, waifish woman and a deep voice makes a standout leading lady. The timbre of Sullivan's voice radiates strength, intelligence, and resilience. Her voice makes me think, think of things in free association like an alpine forest, malachite, and eucalyptus. Margaret Sullivan was adept at transmitting a stoic forbearance and an aversion to self-pity better than anyone else on screen. In melodrama, she could take it on the chin and keep her head held high. Her first husband, Henry Fonda, said, She was not an easy woman to categorize or explain. If I've ever known anyone in my life, man or woman, who was unique, it was she. There was nobody like her before or since, never will be, in every way, in talent, in looks, in character, in temperament, everything. There sure wasn't anybody who didn't fall under her spell. Tennessee Williams said of her, my mother was instrumental in placing women before me that she also admired, and they tended to be Southern women from good homes with good intentions. They were women my mother would have liked to have been, and I could make my mother happy by telling her she was much like them. This is how Miriam Hopkins and Margaret Sullivan came into my consciousness. They were ideal women. I had photographs of Margaret Sullivan all around me for many years, and I think she seeped into my blood because I could hear her voice and imagine her baleful beauty as words were spoken. Best known for her starring role with Jimmy Stewart in The Shop Around the Corner, a Christmas favorite from Ernest Lubitsch, she made only 17 films in a career that lasted from 1931 to 1943 before she returned to the stage. She made one last picture in 1950, No Sad Songs for Me. Cry Havoc from 1943 is one of my favorites and will probably be another podcast episode someday. Look for Only Yesterday on YouTube. Seek out Shopworn Angel, The Shining Hour with Joan Crawford, Three Comrades, The Mortal Storm, the remake of Backstreet she did, and when she reteams with Boyer in Appointment for Love. The Good Fairy rates as one of Sullivan's best performances, and luckily she didn't have to die at the end of this picture, as she did in so many others. Devoid of cynicism, the picture affirms the essential goodness of human beings, and it doesn't resort to cloying, saccharine sentiment. There are a million ways this picture could have failed, and somehow it hits the right tone throughout, thanks to Preston Sturgis's script, but also wholly due to Margaret Sullivan's guileless, captivating performance. 
by a woman's picture miracle, a story about a girl set loose among the wolves becomes a sweet fairy tale instead of a horror show. Sullivan, who looks like an undersized Dickensian urchin wearing a smock and pigtails when the film opens in a Budapest orphanage, could easily pass for a teenager without any camera tricks. An opening montage establishes the grim tedium of life for girls in the asylum. Essentially a workhouse, the girls are regimented to clean, sew, practice carpentry, cook, wash dishes, and obey the prevailing order to do a good deed every day to repay society for their keep. Although overworked and mostly on the scrawny side, the girls are nonetheless protected from the outside world. That is until one day when Alan Hale calls in wearing a Hamburg coat with a fur collar. He owns the largest cinema in Budapest that seats 3,000. In need of usherettes to seat patrons, his wife gives him the idea to poach them from the foundlings behind gates. He hopes the city's wards won't create havoc by dating his customers, as the present girls do in his employ. A parallel scene of the girls set in the kitchen contrasts with the rich man requesting a young girl from the front office. A production line of girls wash and dry the dishes, some peel potatoes. Sullivan's Louisa Ginglebusher carries stacks of plates up a rickety ladder to a high shelf, all while telling a story to keep the small ones content in their chores. Sullivan hangs off the ladder, balances on a broom, and simulates flight, so enraptured in the story of the good fairy that she tells. She gives them the magic words that conjure escape from the asylum. Wampa Wampa, Wampa Wampa, Eeny Meeny Miny Moe, Sweet and Faithful Rosalinda, Take Me Where I Want to Go. Louisa chants the incantation with the power of any good witch, as above, so below. Because the orphanage is so bleak and stern, the girls need magic to elevate their spirits. They need to believe that they can cast a spell of transformation that offers escape. Historically speaking, women who banded together to support and care for each other were branded witches. In Weiler's picture, they may be poor orphans, but they must believe in magic to survive. When Louisa leaves the asylum to be an usherette, she's again marching in formation, this time with a jazzy usherette uniform made of a husser cap and cape. She holds an arrow that lights up to point patrons in, in the correct entrance. One patron objects to her direction. He says he takes orders all day at work and he doesn't want them in his free time. Reginald Owen plays Detlef, the waiter, the one man in the picture who asks nothing from Louisa and does his level best to shield her from the wolves. Louisa stops for a moment and takes a seat in the row behind Detlef to watch the feature on screen. Preston Sturgis delivers a delightful parody of woman's pictures in the movie within a movie trope that he later used when he was a director. On screen, against a lavish Art Deco set, a man repudiates a woman. He points and bellows but one word of dialogue, go. She protests, but Meredith, while clutching sumptuous furs and other glamorous accessories. She asks what will become of her and their innocent son. Still, he insists, go. In woman's pictures, one of the most reliable plot devices features a woman suffering over the way some man did her wrong, and usually she's the height of style in her private anguish. I can howl just thinking of the scene. 
Detlef gives her a ticket to the ball after she asks him to pretend to be her husband to ward off Cesar Romero, who's either looking for sex or a free meal when he badgers her at the cinema exit. Louisa, though, isn't Cinderella. At the ball, she doesn't meet Prince Charming. Instead, she meets Frank Morgan, a wealthy man who decides that he can have her as easily as anything he might order off the menu. Naive Louisa doesn't know that a private dining room could set the stage for sexual assault. If not for the noble waiter, she would have been ravaged before the first course. Frank Morgan's character corners Louisa. His version of a game consists of playing mountain lion with Louisa as the lamb. He lifts her up to devour her in a ham-fisted maneuver. Louisa again claims a husband, a ruse to put off Frank Morgan's character. He decides he'll make the husband wealthy as a way to benefit Louisa indirectly. She chants the magic spell again to ask Rosalinda to help her pick a poor lawyer from the phone book, someone who would be worthy of her help. Louisa's Hocus Pocus picks a total random stranger from the phone book who turns out to be a better man than Frank Morgan. Morgan's character treats women as though they were just another piece of meat for him to consume. Louisa finally escapes the private dining room only after promising to have dinner with him the following evening. On the way out, she stops in the hotel corridor, throws open balcony doors, and looks out over the twinkling lights of Budapest with Detlef behind her. She looks out upon the rooftops with the proprietary air that's usually reserved for men in pictures. She says, somewhere out there in the night, maybe in one of those twinkling lights, maybe in one of those darkened windows, little Maxie is worried about the rent or how he's going to eat tomorrow. And just think, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that I'm taking care of him, that I'm his good fairy. What's most interesting is that rather than paint Louisa as a passive Cinderella, where other people make things happen, she's the one who acts and affects the life of a stranger. He prospers from her benevolence and from her willingness to sacrifice herself to Frank Morgan so that he can have his pencil sharpener. Maybe only Irene Dunn rivaled Sullivan's ability to be noble and self-sacrifice on screen. Herbert Marshall, stalwart leading man in woman's pictures, could not be more attractive as Max Sporum, a poor lawyer whose top dream is his own pencil sharpener with different size holes. But even the desirable man is no Prince Charming, Thanks to Louisa, Frank Morgan's wealthy meat importer, hires Herbert Marshall as head of his legal team and bestows an annual salary of 100000 He doesn't share his boon with Louisa and thinks only of himself. Detlef told her she should expect Sable, but all she gets is bargain rate Foxine, a cheap imitation. She doesn't know any better, so she poses alluringly in the infinity mirror, replaying the scene from the woman's picture, with the knockoff pelt tucked under her chin to look sorrowful. Marshall makes such a big show about buying the cheap fur for her, though, as if he were extending the generosity of a sumptuous wrap. The poor orphan cries and says that no one has ever given her anything. Suddenly, he should feel even worse for bestowing so little to earn her profound gratitude. Viewers get a fairy tale, but without the usual glamour of riches or a makeover. We do get a makeover, but rather than Louisa done up in sable or satin gowns, it's Marshall who gets a shave to remove a pompous goatee. He believes he's being rewarded for his high ideals rather than the machinations of an altruistic orphan. 
In a standout scene, when the cast gathers in Sporum's office, Louisa recalls what happened that night with the rich industrialist and how she hasn't been frightened until he picked her up and carried her off to his imaginary cave in the mountain. She cries. The butcher had never stopped pursuing Louisa even when he thought she had a husband. Miraculously, especially in light of recent revelations in Hollywood, the men believe her and they refuse to collude with Morgan when he says it was only a game. Herbert Marshall's character assumes the mantle of authority to, to proclaim his behavior predatory. The law has a different name for it, sir, he says. Morgan tries to deflect the charge, feigning ignorance of the law. Either he doesn't think it applies to him or he doesn't care. Dressed in a crushed velvet jacket with a scholastic-looking bow under the collar, Sullivan again evokes an earnest Dickensian character, pleading her case in front of the lawyer, the waiter, and the butcher. Hermione Rich Isaacs wrote a profile on Wyler in 1947, included in the collection William Wyler, edited by Gabriel Miller and noted that when it was released, The Good Fairy was criticized for including too many close-ups of Margaret Sullivan. I find it hard to believe that anyone would complain about giving a man too many close-ups, but the critics, no doubt, felt justified because Weiler and Sullivan married before production wrapped. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Jan Herman's biography of Weiler, A Talent for Trouble, The Life of Hollywood's Most Acclaimed Director. Sullivan, despite the success of her first two pictures, had a disdainful attitude toward Hollywood. Further, her quick temper meant trouble for Weiler during production. His script girl, Frida Rosenblatt, remembered that while Sullivan seemed, quote, very cute and had a winsome sort of appeal, she didn't care what happened to anybody. She did spiteful things to get her way, Rosenblatt said. If she was tired and wanted to go home and Willie had one more scene to do, she would smear the makeup on her face. That would mean everything had to stop so she could be made up again, which might take hours. So they couldn't shoot. Another time, she added, Maggie got so bored between scenes, she went behind one of the sets and purposely lay down on the dusty floor. The beautiful white dress she was wearing was a wreck. That stopped everything. Sullivan's willfulness also extended to artistic disagreements with her director. Weiler remembered, we fought over the interpretation of her part. We fought over everything. We didn't get along at all. She had a mind of her own, and so did I. I knew more about pictures than she did. She was a good actress in a way, but she was not terribly ambitious. The fights between director and star took their toll on both sides, but while Weiler could nurse his anger in private, Sullivan's moods showed up on the screen. Watching dailies with the cameraman, Norbert Brodeen, Weiler noticed something wrong in her expression. The girl looks terrible, he said. You didn't photograph her well. What's the matter? The other day she looked good, now she looks terrible. Brodeen replied, you had a fight. Weiler didn't see what that had to do with anything. Each time you have a fight with her, she's unhappy and doesn't look good, Brodine explained. When she's happy, she looks beautiful. You have a fight with her, she looks terrible. Weiler decided for the sake of the picture, he would make peace. So he asked Sullivan to dinner. They went out a second time and a third. A romance blossomed virtually overnight. To his surprise, Weiler found he was absolutely crazy about her. The dread thought of marriage popped into his head one evening when they were watching dailies of the picture's wedding scene. 
Unable to decide which takes were best, they reviewed the scene together in their projection room long after the rest of the staff had left. By coincidence, they'd met for the first time 18 months earlier in that same projection room. Weiler had been running off a print of Duvivier's Paul de Courat, brought over from France, when Sullivan burst in, thinking the dailies from only yesterday were being shown. Now, as he sat next to her in the dark, he smoked a cigarette and watched Sullivan in the picture's closing scene. She looked radiant in a wedding gown. Do you think, he whispered, there is any law against a star marrying her director? Sullivan leaned in and squeezed his arm. I'll tell you tomorrow, she whispered back. Weiler didn't sleep that night. Needing to talk to someone about his feelings, he confided in Sturgis. What do you think of my marrying Maggie? Well, she's not marrying you for your money, Sturgis said, pointing out that Sullivan had the greater earning power. Should I go ahead with this, Weiler persisted. Sturgis was typically cavalier. Sure, why not? The night after he proposed, Weiler nervously paced the set as he waited for Sullivan to arrive. She came in, smiling demurely. There is no law against an actress marrying her director, she said. I looked it up. There was, however, the question of Weiler's marrying outside the Jewish faith. Though he was scarcely a practicing Jew, his parents were. When he brought Sullivan home to dinner, his father, who did not understand English very well, took Willie aside. What did you say her name was? Solomon? His mother, who was anxious for Willie to marry, had already tried to arrange meetings for him with eligible Jewish women. Weiler's response to her matchmaking had been blunt. If I find the right woman, he once told her, I'll marry her whether she's a Jew or a Christian. To avoid the three-day waiting period required in California, Weiler and Sullivan decided to fly to Yuma, Arizona, just across the state border on a chartered DC-3. Though their wedding plan was secret, industry gossip about the romance had gotten out, and Sullivan's former lover, Jed Harris, suddenly appeared at the studio. He turned up on set, Rosenblatt recounted. I don't know what he knew, but he was there. He took Maggie aside and pleaded with her to, to marry him right there. Maybe that had something to do with Willie's urgency. Weiler reflected years later. There he was out of the blue. He stood there like Sven Gali. In those days, flying out from New York was something. He made her very nervous, but I think she was fascinated by him. He had kind of a hold on her. I think she desperately wanted to get away from him. For what reason, I don't know. I think trying to get away from Jed Harris contributed to the fact that she married me. On the morning they chose to elope, Harris tried to stop them. Sullivan asked Weiler to let her speak with Harris alone. Weiler waited for her half an hour in the, in the hotel lobby. Is she going to come or isn't she, he recalled thinking. It seemed like forever. Then Sullivan appeared, her face co totally composed. Okay, let's go, she said, as if nothing unusual had happened. They were married on a Sunday, November 25, 1934, by Yuma's marrying justice, Earl A. Freeman. It was a perfectly horrible ceremony, Weiler recalled. The justice was dressed in his bathrobe and slippers. The radio was blaring. The justice's wife, who witnessed the ceremony, was in, a it was in the bathroom and wouldn't come out. So they slipped the marriage certificate under the bathroom door for her to sign. Afterwards, the newlyweds celebrated with a snack at a local coffee shop, where the waitress recognized Sullivan and made a fuss over her. By Monday morning, they were back at the studio. The surprise marriage had made a big splash in the press. 
The Good Fairy finished filming on December 15th. It had been a long shoot, 64 days. When the picture finally went into post-production, Weiler asked to be released from his contract. Although he had no definite prospects, he once again felt he had to get away from Universal. He also reasoned that now that he was married to a movie star, he had to do better. And to his surprise, the studio agreed to let him go. In late January 1935, star and director attended the opening of The Good Fairy at Radio City Music Hall in New York. It was the first time in the history of the music hall, the nation's most prestigious venue, that a picture had been booked there without having to be previewed for the theater's executives. They took it on faith. The Good Fairy turned out to be a smash hit. Thanks very much for joining me for this episode. Join me next time when I talk about The Strange Love of Molly Louvain with Anne Dvorak from 1932. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to tan